You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Need of awakening, God. Each and every day, physical awakening, but a spiritual awakening, God. We need you to shake our spirit, God. And I ask that you do that today. I pray that this passage in Romans where we are exhorted by Paul to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the context of deep family community would resonate on the hearts of your people here today, God. I pray, Father, desperately that you would preach this message to my own soul. Lord, that we would live our lives out of loving our Father, who we just sung to, the profound words of the, of the hymns and the songs that we just sung, the truths, the reality of our faith, God, that we are children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. Lord, thank you for that, Lord. May that not simply rattle around in our hearts, God, but may it function in actions of love for one another and for a world that is dying around us. Casualties are piling up all around us, God. May you wake us up, Father, to that truth today. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, I am going to attempt to uh, heed Sam's advice and preach with a cough drop in my mouth. And uh, at some point I may spit it out. At some point, it may voluntarily come out. So I'm just warning you. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, this morning, we are in Romans chapter 12. So if you don't have your Bible, uh, or if you haven't opened it yet, please do open it, turn it on, whatever you need to do. Get to Romans chapter 12. We'll be in verses 1 through 16 this morning. We're, of course, in the middle of our vision series. Two weeks ago, I think, I've lost track of all time with, with the cancellation last Sunday and the potential cancellation today. Thank you for, for Rockwood for not closing down today. Um, we appreciate that very much. But two weeks ago, Sam began our vision, our three, what will be a three-week vision series called Simply Jesus, and he preached uh, the foundational message, which was uh, Simply Jesus. Now, the, the, the foundation is Christ, but the, um, the sermon series is coming out of our mission statement, which is, of course, we exist as a church to glorify God by seeing lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and Sam said we can shorten that to just say we glorify God by making disciples. Very short, very, very sweet statement. We glorify God by making disciples, and we do that in the rhythm of Jesus' family and mission should be familiar language to everybody. This is our mission statement of our church. Sam pointed out it really is the mission statement of any Christ-centered church to exist, to glorify the one true God by seeing lives transformed, not by ourselves, but by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any Christian church where Christ is its king has that as its foundational mission statement. Whether they say it or not, that is true of them. Our rhythms of that, we say, is Jesus' family and mission. Now, Sam said something. I wonder if you paid attention. I wonder if you heard it. He said that there was a nuance. Do you guys remember him saying this? He said there was a nuance that he wanted to, to not just point out, but he wanted you guys, and I believe the word he used was meditate on. Do you remember what the nuance was? Does anybody remember what he said? Anybody? That was two weeks ago. We've had a lot of snow since then. Anybody? Just say it if you remember. What's that? Wrap your lives around Jesus? Yes, that is part of it. That is part of it. That is a right answer. Wrap your, that was the beginning, right? But he said that, that the, the, the rhythms of Jesus' family and mission is the pathway. Remember that? He said it's the pathway, specifically the pathway to discipleship. And he said he wanted you to meditate and think on that. And that's where I want to begin today, because this is something we really want you to fix in your minds and your hearts if you don't know the mission statement, and if you don't know that it's Jesus' family and mission is the rhythms, we're asking you to please let that resonate in your soul. This is, this is really, really important that you get this this year. 
Jesus' family mission is the pathway to disciple this to discipleship in our church. He began by saying, Jesus, wrap yourself around Jesus, around the life of Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I believe the word he used was dude. Right? You remember that one, don't you? Jesus is a dude. He was a man, right? And Sam said something that really resonated with me. He said that we can hide in the unknowable God, right? Because we can intellectualize our faith. And we can hide in the Holy Spirit, God, because we can over-experientialize our faith, if, that's, if I said that right. But we cannot hide, we cannot escape the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that really, really resonated with me, and I, I pray that it resonates with you because it's the foundation of everything. The first ask of the gospel is to wrap our lives around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he said this, Jesus demands a whole person engagement in the gospel. There is intellectualism to our faith. God gave us a mind, right? There is experience to our faith. God gave us a heart and a soul and a being that feels and hears and we can weep at music and at movies and in all kinds of different things in life. He gives us that ability to experience, but there's also obedience and action to our faith. And those are words we don't like to hear much, especially the first one. But it's true. We can over-intellectualize our faith, we can experientialize our faith, and we cannot pay attention to obedience and action. And Jesus does not allow us to do that. He just doesn't allow us to do that. That's the first step of, this, of the pathway to discipleship. The next one, of course, is family. That's what I'll be preaching on today, right? If we wrap our lives around Jesus, if we love and engage Jesus Christ, we will love his family. So we're going to talk this morning about what does it mean to covenant to God and to the church, to to his family. And the third step in the pathway to discipleship is mission. If we love Jesus, if we love his family, we will love his mission. Jesus, family, mission. Now, before I dig into the specifics of family, what I want to do is I want to take the nuance that Sam talked about, right? the subtle distinction of this pathway, and I want, us to, I want to bring a little bit more focus in on this because it's very, very important to the life of our church this year. Okay? A vision series message, by definition, should make your ears perk up. It should make you perk up. It should make you want to listen and pay attention carefully to everything that is said because this, everything we say should be put into action this year. And it's your guys' responsibility as a church to hold us accountable to this. Okay? So it's very, very important. I want to, I want to zone in on this idea of the pathway to discipleship because you can take a 30,000-foot look, which is what the overall mission is, Jesus' family mission, right? It's just the, the overall look that we'll talk about, but I want to take a ground-level perspective, right? The 30,000 perspective of the pathway to discipleship is simply that big picture that, that in God's eternal plan, we are saved through Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are brought into the kingdom of his family, and we are compelled on the mission. Very broad, very general uh, discipleship uh, pathway message, 30,000 foot, right? broad level, not a bad perspective at all, an excellent, a foundational, a necessary perspective for us all to get. The problem is many of us stay there. We stay at the big 30,000 foot level and we don't come down in the weeds in the ground level. And that's what we have to do. We have got to come down and see this as a pathway that we don't see from the 30,000 foot airplane view of a runway, but actually is a pathway that we walk on. Every single day. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to talk about this ground level view. We're going to descend like an airplane. We're going to talk about this ground level perspective of this pathway uh, of discipleship. Jesus family mission. That's what we're going to hyper focus in on 2019. Um, Jesus will always be our focus. But we're going to zone in particularly this year on the family and the mission. Okay. So I want us to think of it this way. And it all hinges on what Sam said last week. Jesus demands a whole person engagement in the gospel. He doesn't leave us at 30,000 feet. 
He is not satisfied to leave us at 30,000 feet. Jesus came and he walked this earth. He walked this earth. That's Sam's whole point. Wrap yourself around this dude that came as a baby, grew up as a young man, had a ministry, loved people, suffered, died, ascended to heaven bodily, where he still sits in bodily form, by the way. Do you realize that? Jesus still has a body. He didn't just make a guest appearance in flesh. He still is in flesh. We just don't see it. He is in the heavenly realm, in flesh, though, and will return in flesh one day. That is the Jesus. This is why we have to grasp this ground level. So the ground level pathway of discipleship, we wrap around our lives around Jesus as that first step, as we've said. But what this looks like from this ground level, when God saves us and we wrap our lives around Jesus, the first step on the pathway is to engage in the worship with, of God with God's people on Sunday mornings. Ground level, first step, Sunday morning worship. Does that make sense? That's the first step in our pathway. We come here, we come here to encounter God. Everyone that's here is probably going, check. I got that. I'm here today. I'm here every Sunday or most Sundays. My question to you is, is that true of you? Is that true of you? Or are you just checking a box? Are you just mailing it in? Or do you see Sunday morning as a moment of engagement with God and with his people? Do you anticipate being with God and with his people? Do you anticipate singing songs that the band so meticulously and diligently prepares throughout the week? Folks, we were just led by a couple of students in our student ministry. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? That's what God is doing. It's an amazing thing. And when they're not here helping, Lane is here diligently working for our church during the week, trying to put together a worship set that captures our hearts. Do we think about that during the week? Are we just coming on Sunday morning, just checking a box, mailing it in, looking at our watch, ready to leave and go to lunch? When we think about the pathway of discipleship and the next step we need to take, right? And that's how we think of pathways, is what's the next step? Perhaps some of us need to consider taking the next step of authentic worship. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear me say. We all, we all go in and out of this. We all struggle. I do. There are times I'm here on Sunday mornings, unless I'm here and have a speaking role, and sometimes even when I do, I can easily mail it into. So I'm not throwing darts at people. The, the sinfulness of our heart, we get distracted, and we get weighed down by stuff in life. We do. And sometimes we need to come and we just need to sit and we just need to exist and we just need to be, be ministered to. There's, there is a place for that. Right? But there's a place also for us to prepare our hearts and to come and to engage. So that's the first step in the, in the pathway of discipleship. The next step is family, which we're going to talk more in detail today. What this looks like, though, from the ground level perspective is engaging in gospel community. You've heard this before. We say this. If you're not in a gospel community, let us know. We want to engage you in gospel community. That is where life happens in our church. Some of you have been coming for a while, and you need to take that next step and turn in a connect card and plug into a gospel community. That's where life happens. Gospel community is where, where there is knowing and being known, caring and being cared for, equipping and being equipped, leading and being led both by the Holy Spirit and one another. And it's where we are sending and sent as well. It's where life happens. The truth is, most of you are already in a gospel community. But just like engagement on a Sunday morning, we can mail in gospel community, can't we? We can show up once a week and say we're in community. But showing up one night a week is not being in community. It's going to a meeting. There's a difference. Going, going to a meeting once a week is not being in community. The question to ask then is, do I attend the gospel community or I, am I in community? Do you see it as a once a week commitment or are you intentionally wrapped up in the lives of those that you're in community 
with? Do you engage them other times of the week? Do you think of them other times of the week? Do you serve them and serve with them and pray for them and celebrate with them and mourn with them? Or do you only think about them the night you meet or the day you meet? Again, ask yourself, what's the next step I need to take? And again, none of us do it perfectly. And we never will. None of our gospel communities will meet perfection this side of glory. But that is the vision for that. Mission is the third step in the discipleship pathway. How do you engage the mission of God at the ground level? Now on this, on this at, at the 30,000 foot level, it's very easy for us to engage because we can go on a short-term mission trip or we can give to missions or we can give to the church who then gives and facilitates missions. And those are all very, very good and we need to be doing those things. But again, ground level, for some of you it's easy because some of you have the gift of evangelism. And so mission is very simple because it's just who you are. It's who God has gifted you to be, right? That's a spiritual gift, evangelism. But not all of us have it. Not all of us have it. But we are all given a mandate by Jesus in Matthew 28 to do what? Make disciples. That includes all of us. Even if we don't have a gift of evangelism, we are called to make disciples. What does that look like? Well, that specific question is what we will address at our church in 2019. What does it look like to make disciples? How do we make disciples? Is there anybody that would like to know how that happens? Glad to see a few hands. I trust you all raised your hand in your heart because it's a mandate by our Lord. It's the heart of Jesus. It's the missio Dei. It's the mission of God. And we need to get after this, and we need to figure out what it looks like in our church. So I'm asking you guys to keep your mind, keep your, uh, your eyes and your ears open this year, particularly in the next couple weeks and a couple of months, because we're going to be rolling out Discipleship 101 material, Okay. It's going to be something we're going to be talking about. We'll be, you'll be hearing about it from, uh, from the pulpit, from the bistro, bistro pulpit. You'll be hearing about it, talking about it through gospel communities. It will be in our newsletters and our blogs. It will come from me as your discipleship pastor. I am committed to actually challenge us. I have a vested interest to challenge all of us in this because it's something that we are called to. It's something we are commanded to. So, Something I'm really excited about, Jesse mentioned it uh, a little bit about a meeting that's going to take place today for the, for the Treehouse volunteers for training. And those of you that are parents already know this, but everybody needs to know and be praying about this. Beginning next Sunday, our Treehouse, which is for our, for our kids, right, is expanding a new initiative that, that will begin discipling the children of our church. Now, we know that's the family's job. We're not farming this out, and we're not facilitating an environment where that's farmed out. It's a partnership. But if we want to love and serve our families, we need to have a way that we engage parents, engage this mission field of children that we have, 25 or 30 little kids that we've got that, that can be potentially running through this, this discipleship hour on Sunday morning, starting next Sunday at 9 o'clock. It'll run from 9 to 10, approximately. So if you're, if you're a parent of a little one, you know this. This is for the kids up to 11 years old, a, a spot where we have not been filling, right? If you were a little one up to age four or five, we'd watch the kids. If you were 12 on up, we had student community on Wednesday nights. But that big gap in there of kids from five or six to 11 was a big gap in there. And so we want to shore that up. We want to create a discipleship atmosphere for those kids. And it begins next Sunday morning. Now, for those of you who are... Um, parents of those children who will be bringing them, or for anybody, that same hour, coinciding in that same hour, will be an opportunity for the adults to gather together. First of all, to pray. Our prayer hour will be moved up to 9 a.m. Come and pray with God's people. Pray for those kids. Pray for our neighbors. Pray for this school and the people that roam these halls during the week who don't know Jesus. There will also be an opportunity in two weeks to start a Discipleship 101 class, an environment where we'll begin to learn about what discipleship is and what disciple-making is, and we'll define some terms, and we'll talk about how to be equipped to be a disciple-maker. I'm not talking about evangelism programming. I'm talking about how to be engaged in one-on-one -on -one discipleship. 
one-on-one disciple making with someone. That's something that we're going to be doing. Now, for the time I have left, if you fall in love with Jesus, you will fall in love with his family and his mission. Romans chapter 12. You've heard the passage. I'm not going to read it again. But Paul begins in chapter 12 by saying this, you are a living sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. Rid yourself of pride and selfishness and the me-centricity, and you see yourself as who you are, a living sacrifice. And don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's assuming transformation has already taken place, by the way. Because Romans 1 through 11 is all about God bringing us from death to life. If you have not read it, please do. It's the gospel. Chapters 1 through 11 in Romans. Turning the page into chapter 12, he is saying, Therefore, as a result of all of what I just talked about, how when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Jesus Christ by the grace and mercy of Jesus Your natural, worshipful response, then, he says, is to engage the battle. Engage the battle. You're a living sacrifice. Be transformed. You're transformed. Don't be conformed to the world. Engage in the battle. You see, the world, Paul is saying, is constantly trying to get its grips on us. And we all know this. We all feel this intuitively. The world is constantly trying to drag us down. And it is a battle. It is a spiritual battle of epic proportion. And sometimes we don't realize it, but it is. It is a serious, epic battle that is going on all around us. And at some point in our lives, we face a question as it relates to this engagement of the battle. Am I going to live life on my terms and fight this battle, or am I going to engage God? And am I going to fight this battle on God's terms? Will I allow the world to shape my reality, or will I submit my life to the one who created me, not just to survive in this life, but to thrive in it? God has equipped us for this battle. The problem is, even though we have said yes and amen, God, you have saved a wretched soul. I am in the battle, I am on the battlefield, I am fighting it, and even the best of us that engage in that battle, even the best of us, we forget. We forget the gospel. We do it all the time. As believers, we have signed up, we have engaged on God's term, which means we have submitted to Jesus Christ. But we forget the gospel. When we forget the gospel, Second Peter talks about forgetting, literally forgetting that you have been saved. When we forget the gospel, we tend to forsake those with whom we are in the battle. Right? It's like a natural byproduct, like the first thing to go. We get very inward focused and we get very selfish and we try to go it alone, which never works for us. Engaging this on our own doesn't work. We need reminders, and that's what this text today is about. It's, it's Paul saying, be transformed. Don't be conformed. Reestablish what you once believed. And do it again and again and again. He calls us to remember the gospel in the context, as we will see in the context of deep covenant community with one another. Because there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. It just doesn't exist. We cannot do this on our own. It's not set up that way. When we are saved from Satan's sin and death, we are saved for the good works God has, has um, predestined for us. That's the first thing. But we are saved into the body of Christ, where God is our Father, Jesus are, is our brother, and listen, we are individually members one of another, it says in Romans 12. And other places, Paul says as well. Individually, we are members one of another. Romans 5, excuse me. Now, the church often gets a bad rap. Sometimes deservedly so. We do some pretty pretty silly, stupid things all in the name of the church. But not all the time, right? Not all the time is the church doing stupid stuff. The church is important, 
right? The church is not necessary for salvation, right? Hear me on this. The church isn't necessary for salvation. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, through faith in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, awakening us up to the truth of our sin and the reality of God's holiness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So the church isn't necessary to save us. However, it doesn't mean it's an optional add-on to our Christian walk. It doesn't mean we can treat it or should treat it like it's a health club membership. And when the equipment gets run down or when the classes aren't what we like or we don't like the new owner of the business, we go somewhere else. That's not what the church is meant to be. Sadly, that's what the church has become. Another vehicle of consumerism. You've heard this before. I'm not the first one to say this. But this is a foundational message and a foundational understanding of our church and what we believe. We will always fight against that here. We will always fight against that. Listen to what John Stott says about the church. I think we have it up on the screen for you guys to follow along with. If I successfully gave it to Drew. Um, John Stott says this. There we go. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. The church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. Christ founded the church, purchased it with his blood, and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the, is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and, for, and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. Do you think of the church that way? Do you think of this church that way? Because that's the, that's the question I'm asking. Is do you think of this church, Red Tree Church, particularly if you are a covenant member? But even if you're just a regular attender, and I don't mean that to sound like I'm demeaning somebody who's just a regular attender. That's not how I meant that. If you're a regular attender, you are still valued by us. Our desire is to invite you into covenant community. But is that how you see the church, how John Stott just described it? Today we're going to talk about what does it look like to covenant together as a family. I want to make a couple of statements. First one about us, and then one about God. The one about us says that when we are saved, we're not only saved from something, we are saved to something. We've talked about this already. Namely, the kingdom of God, the church, the family of God. Those are all the same thing. We are saved into the kingdom of God, the church, the family of God. Now, here's what I want to say about God. God always desired a family that would represent who he is and what he is like to the whole world. God has always desired a family that would represent himself to the world around us and what he is like. And here's the point today of my message. Our time spent as a covenanted family, inviting others to walk in the ways of Jesus with us, to eat with us, to serve with us, is the best way for us to experience life in our Father's household, the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Our time spent as a covenanted family here on this earth, in the church, inviting others to walk in the ways of Jesus with us, to eat with us, to serve with us, to worship with us, is the best way for us to experience life in our Father's household, the kingdom of God. That's the thrust of the message today. We get to do this in the context of of community. So I'm going to talk about two things. The language of covenant. Why do we use the language of covenant? It seems like an archaic word, perhaps, to some of you. For, 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 for those of you that are members, you, you, you understand the, the term, or at least you're familiar with the term. But, but we're going to talk about the language of covenant and why we use that language. And then we're going to talk about living it out in Romans 12. So first, the language of the covenant. Um, it's how God relates to his people, historically. Covenant language is how God has historically related to his people. Covenants are the backbone of the biblical storyline. Right? It's how the storyline advances in Scripture. So if we understand the idea and the concept of covenant and how they function in Scripture, we're going to have a really good grasp of how Scripture fits together 
and we'll be able to see the big picture of Scripture. Now, what this is going to help us do is interpret details, not for the purpose of just getting head knowledge, though, right? We don't learn about the covenants and things like this in Scripture just to, to, to get intimate with these details and be able to interpret details and know what certain passages mean. Yes, that's important, but we do it because we need to be better storytellers. That's the reason. We want to understand covenants so we can understand the grid work and how the story advances in Scripture so we can be better storytellers of this amazing story that God has brought us into, that He has saved us into, how He has created us as His image to love others in the world and to function as His family, the church, the kingdom of God, kingdom people, loving God, loving people. Covenants are relationships in which two parties make a binding promise and a commitment. It's a partnership, right? We often think of marriage, and we talk of marriage as an example of a covenant, the covenant of marriage. And it's through the, through the covenant that God is forming a family into which he is inviting everyone. So his glory may be on display. So some of you are like, okay, get on with it. We're talking about covenants. There are four primary covenants in Scripture. Real quick, we've got the the covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Okay, And the one with Noah is the the flood, right? God promises Noah, I'm not going to kill off the people because he's angry with the people. He's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. He saves Noah and his family, and he says, I promise I will not do it again by a flood. And he gives us a symbol of the rainbow. That's, That's the covenant promise. What was Noah's end of the bargain? Nothing. Noah didn't have to do anything. It was all a covenant of pure grace, showing us the very heart of our God right at the beginning. In spite of the evil wickedness of his people, God will continue to be faithful. He will continue to be faithful. The covenant with Abraham, God's promise to Abraham is what? He will bless him. He will bless his family, make him as, as, as varied and as many as the stars in heaven. All Abraham needed to do was to trust him. Trust God. And he didn't do it. Couldn't have a kid, found a surrogate. But we know even then, this covenant was a covenant of grace because God said, you will be my people and I will be your God. This covenant was still a covenant bathed in the grace of God. The covenant with Moses was very simple. Here are my laws. Here are my laws. Obey them and you're going to be blessed. Don't obey them, you're going to be cursed. It's not going to go well for you. Moses comes down from the mountain. They're building calves, golden calves. doesn't take very long. And they're already going down the wrong path. But it's a covenant of works. It's a covenant where if you do this, I will bless you. It does not eradicate the covenant of grace with Abraham. That is still a full-functioning covenant of grace that God is moving along the storyline of covenant. He's advancing the story. We come to the covenant promises with King David that that God would raise up a perfect and obedient king. Because kings, many of them, most of them were wicked. Wicked kings. And he said, I will raise up from your lineage, David, a king who will sit on the throne and he will extend my grace and my peace and my blessing through the kingdom of God. That's the covenant with David. Now the problem with these covenants The issue here is that the people were continuously rebellious. They didn't trust him. They didn't obey him. They were unfaithful to God in unbelievable ways. Some of the words and language, some of the language in Scripture to describe the unfaithfulness of his people are unspeakable. Rampant unfaithfulness. But God, again, shows his heart for his people. He provides a way through this elaborate system of sacrifices, right, that we get lost in when we read Scripture, to reconnect people to himself, to atone for sin, but only once a year and only by one man who can enter into the Holy of Holies and give sacrifice to God. And so God scatters the people. He scatters the people and he sends prophets. This is where the prophets come in. He sends prophets to warn the people of the coming judgment of God. And the prophets sometimes would even weep for the people and plead with the people to repent and turn back to their creator, turn back to God. And they were also prophets that provided a message of hope. 
judgment, but also hope. Hope saying one guy, one day, God will write his law in your hearts. He will bring a king that will usher that in. Those are the covenants, and it's through his covenants that God promises to bring about his kingdom. And we read about this man, this dude, Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, right, where we're preaching now out of, out of Mark. You'll remember in Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes on the scene and he says what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus says. King Jesus comes on the scene. A king wrapped in the clothes of a human, walking the earth, begins his ministry and says this. Repent and believe the gospel. Now consider something with me. What identifies the kingdom people in the Old Covenant? What, what identifies the people of God in the Old Covenant? The Israelites. Their ethnicity, they're Jews, right? They are a set-apart people, right? They are, they are taken out of the world. There, there, there are many nations in the world, and the Israelites, the Jews, are taken out of those nations, and they are set apart as God's people. They are marked by their ethnicity. They are marked by their circumcision. They are, they are marked by... Um, uh, dietary restrictions and laws, and they are marked by their land. This is how they're set apart people, right? You could not wake up one day, if you were not Jewish, and decide to wander into the, to the land of Israel and say, hey, I'd like to be a Jew. Where do I sign up for the next gospel community? Wouldn't happen that way. They were set apart people that were marked, up, marked off by a very definitive way. Now consider this. What identifies or what marks off new covenant people? Well, Jesus tells us. He says it's a repentant heart. It's being poor in spirit, having a contrite heart, having a childlike faith. Those are the ones that will enter the kingdom of God. That's what marks off kingdom people. A repentant heart. Childlike faith. A contrite spirit. Now, this presents a problem. People could very easily say they are in the kingdom of God. Right? Couldn't happen back in the, back in the time of the Israelites. But people could very easily say that they are a part of the kingdom of God and actually be imposters. And they can actually be wolves in sheep clothing. Jesus talks about both of those. So that presents a bit of a problem that that can happen. So God does this amazing thing because he's an amazing God. And he describes for us in the parable of the tenants, which you may not remember what that is when you hear it. But, but at the end of that parable is the, the famous verse. Jesus is addressing the chief priests and the Pharisees at the end of this parable. And he, he says, you've rejected me. He's, you've rejected me. I'm the cornerstone, and you have rejected me. And it's the familiar passage that you're all, you're all familiar with. The stone the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone. That's what he tells the leaders. And then Jesus says this. This is, this is amazing. This blew my mind, literally. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God, talking to the chief priests, the Pharisees, the leaders, right, of, of the Jews. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you taken away from you, and given to a people producing fruits. Now, he wasn't saying, I'm done with Israel. It's all about moving forward. It, this whole thing is a grafting in. That's the beauty of the gospel. Paul expounds on that in, 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 in Romans. The, the amazing beauty of grafting in Gentile, believe, Gentile people into the kingdom of God with, with Jews, because it's not about ethnicity. It's not about circumcision, unless it's a circumcision of your heart, right? But the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus says, I am taking the kingdom away from you and I'm giving it to a people who produce fruit. It is through Jesus Christ who fulfills all of the old covenant promises and ushers in the kingdom of God whose citizens are marked off by the fruit of repentant hearts and are poor in spirit and who love people because of that. That's what marks off kingdom people. He brings about the church, the bride of Christ, 
through which Ephesians 3 says, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. This is what happens. That's the the story of how covenant weaves into kingdom and kingdom weaves into church and the church is the people of God. The church isn't the kingdom of God. We are members of the kingdom as the church. If we wrap our lives around Jesus, if we trust and abide in Jesus and Him alone and not the things of this world, we will produce kingdom fruit in the world. We do this as His new covenant people, as His kingdom people, as His church. So then, as the church, the people of God, what do we do? My message is starting now. I'm not kidding. We throw open our doors. We throw open our doors of our church building. And this is, this is where it doesn't matter whether you have a building or not. Yes, we open the doors of our building, whether it's a middle school or whether it is a grand cathedral with stained glass windows. All right? There's some beautiful churches out there doing amazing work because God is in them. We open up those doors of the church wide But more importantly, we open, as kingdom people, we open the doors of what? Our hearts. Because it's been transformed. We open the doors of our hearts and we say to people, we say, come, the weary and the tired and the broken, this is a place of refuge for you. In the bounds of this church, but in our hearts, there is a place of refuge for you. There is a place of safety for you. There is a place where you can work through doubt and struggle with huge questions in life. You can come and you can be in a place. This is true about each of us if we are kingdom people because it's true about the heart of Jesus. That's what this is all about. And we tell the hurting It is within the arms of our Savior Jesus that you will find your true identity, that you will find your true rest, and we will always point you to the direction, to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we do as kingdom people, to trust Him, to abide in Him, to collapse on Him, because in Him is the embodiment of this kingdom of God where we find our rest. And it's because God relates to His people through these covenant relationships that we ask you to covenant with us, with the church, the kingdom people of God, the local body of believers here at Red Tree Church, so that you know and we know that you're not an imposter, that you're not a wolf in sheep's clothing, that we can raise your hand and say, this is a co-heir with Christ, a member of the kingdom of God. That's what the church is, guys. Jesus has given the keys to the kingdom to the church. That's what he's done. Matthew 21 or 2. It's that whole, and I I was going to talk about it, but I don't have time. It's the whole bit about Jesus uh, giving the king, or saying, Jesus, you are the rock on which I will build my church, right? And I'm going to give the keys of the kingdom, right? We, of course, because we're here, and of who we are, Peter was not who some say he is. He was a he was an important, important, vital, critical actor in the initiation of the church, the early church. So it was about the person Peter, yes, but it was about the confession that he confessed. The church confessing the truth about Jesus Christ. And we commit to love you and encourage you in this covenant relationship, and champion you, and equip you, and exhort you, and if necessary, to rebuke you, lovingly rebuke you, but we do this together in a loving way because we are members of God's community. And the reason, the reason church discipline, which praise God we haven't had to do much here at all, but the reason church discipline gets such a bad rap is because we don't understand the reason behind it. The heart behind church discipline is to bring a brother and a sister back into the kingdom. Nothing could be more loving than that. It's the way it's gone about that we get our sinful hooks into and we do it poorly. But it's about bringing the brother or the sister back into the kingdom so they can flourish and thrive in this life in the context of the kingdom here in the local church with kingdom people. Why do we do that? Because we forget. We're back to the fact that we forget. We forget that we've been cleansed by the gospel. I want, to remi- I want someone to remind me when that happens. 
I want somebody to pull me aside and say, Craig, you are forgetting who you are. The behavior that you're, that you're, you're exhibiting, the words that you're using, the attitude I see is not kingdom attitude. What's, what's happening here? I want people to tell me when that happens. Remember, that's covenanting with one another. There are imposters. We can be as diligent and vigilant as we can. Imposters will still get in. Wolves will get in in sheep's clothing. And we are your shepherds called to protect you. But in covenanting together as a family, we commit to do this with one another. Now, let's talk about living this out. I hope... Excuse me. I hope this helps you understand why we use the language of covenant. Is it helpful? Is it helpful? I hope it is. Because it's important. We don't want to use the word covenant as something we beat people over the head. There's a heart behind it. There's the heart of God behind it. And if I haven't articulated it, let me know. And if you want to talk about it more, please, please, please let me know. But let's see if we can get through very quickly what living it out looks like. Now, here's the truth of this. The foundation I just laid is important because literally, really, all you need to do is go home and read Romans 3 through 16. That's the living out. There's no hidden mystery in this. If you read Romans 3 through 16, which we just did, Stephanie read it, that's, that's, that's the message. So we can move through this pretty quickly, but there are some things I do want to point out. And I want to start by saying this, that the foundation of this, the context of everything that we're going to read in Romans 3 through 16, is, is the foundation or the context of humility. It's like bookends in this thing. Verse 3 and verse 16, excuse me. Verse 3 and verse 16 are humility bookends. Verse 3 says, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than he ought, but think with sober judgment humility. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We could stop right there because it's all about humility. Humility is wrapped all in this. And Paul bookends this in verse 3 and verse 16. Humility drives the conversation. And is it any wonder? There's no surprise here. Because that's the very heart of our Jesus. Jesus tells us himself. He gives us a peek into his own heart and he says, At my very heart, I am gentle. I am lowly. I will always be gentle and I will always be lowly, he says. I will never not be that. If that drives Jesus and we are Jesus' people and we are kingdom people, then humility will drive us. And if it doesn't, then we need to figure out why. Because that's where it begins. When we wrap our lives around Jesus, listen, the first thing that becomes evident is a heart of humility. The reason is because ultimate humility is realizing that we cannot do this on our own. That's ultimate humility. When God saves us, it's a realization that I am dead in my sins and I realize my pride and God saves me through Jesus. That's the initial action of a Christian. Our pride says that we can do this on our own, that I don't need anybody else. But when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes for the first time and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this on my own. I really do need somebody to save me. I need Jesus. What do these verses teach us then about what humility looks like? Humility gives us new eyes, you see. Humility gives us new eyes because of this profound truth of salvation and humility. New eyes to see others the same way God sees others. We can look at people and we can say, you are one messed up person. But God loves you. And so do I. That's what humility does. That's how humility functions. How many of us, and I'm raising my hand right now, will judge somebody because of how messed up they are? We all do it. We all do it. And it's pride. Humility says, yeah, you're messed up. I acknowledge it. 
But man, God loves you, and I do too. Let's figure this out together now. With our new hearts, we have the ability and the desire not to just live in harmony, but to engage difficult people. You see, humility, like love, is an action. We think of humility as being this, you know, this, this kind of this mindset, this attitude, but it's not. It's an action. Rick Warren says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And if we're thinking of ourselves less, then who are we thinking of? Other people. And if we're thinking of other people, humility is action turns into love, and we move. We move and we love and we serve those people, regardless of how difficult they are to love. Because here's the truth. There's coming a day, if there hasn't already, and there has, and there will, where you're that person that's difficult to love, right? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I know it's happened. Nah, never mind. I was going to say, I know it's happened with me. I'll get a lot of amens there, especially from <laughs> this area of the theater. But it begins with humility. What do we learn then about what it looks like to live together with Jesus, to covenant to God and to one another, and to do so, do so from this posture then of humility? As God's family of covenanted people then, this is how we relate to each other. Two ways. We serve out of the diversity of our God-given gifts. That's the first thing we learn in these passages. The second is we exhibit a genuine love and a deep affection for one another. So those are the first two things. Out of humility, the posture we have are these two things. One, we serve out of the diversity of our God-given gifts, verses 4 through 8. Look, look, look there with me. The first thing in verse 5 says, We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That right there, I don't think God could be any more clearer about the, 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 the uh, reality of covenanting. We are members one of another. That's pretty intimate. That's pretty intimate. Covenanting to a local church is a no-brainer when you think of yourself as God does, as members one of another. Nothing says family like that does. Members one of another. And this simply affirms the fact that our gifting is meant to serve other people. Our salvation is not meant to terminate on ourselves. That's the first thing. The second truth is in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Our gifts are given to us. I got news for you. Your gifts are not your own. God's given them to you. They're a gift. They're a gift given by God. The gifts we have are given to us out of God's mercy, through Jesus Christ, and even if we use our gifts and talents to serve other people and not ourselves, if we don't acknowledge that, it's just going to be more pride. Gifts are given for the commonwealth of God's people, but always for the glory of God. Gifts are given for the commonwealth of God's people, but for the glory of God. So that first category of thought we want to consider when we think about covenanting with one another is we serve one another, one another out of the diversity of our God-given gifts. Number two, second category for how we relate to one another as God's covenanted family is we exhibit a genuine love and a deep affection for one another. That's 9 through 15. What does it look like? Just memorize that passage and you'll be good to go. You'll be good to go. But let's look at some detail. The first thing it says, abhor what is evil and hold on to what is fast and what is good. Or hold fast to what is good. And I think that's the foundation of Christ-like love, right? Again, humility, Jesus drives it all. But it's that Jesus humility and it's this profound understanding that we are in a battle together. At the most basic foundational level of our understanding of our love for one another is that we are in a war together. We know this. I know some of your stories and you're fighting hard. You're fighting hard because we're in a battle together here and we do this together and we have to have a wartime faith, not a peacetime faith. Our mindset should be, how do I sacrifice to advance this cause as opposed to a peacetime faith that says, how can I be more comfortable? How can I be more secure? Churches are not meant to be luxury liners. They're meant to be troop carriers. Some of you have heard the analogy of the Queen Mary 
uh, back at the turn of the century, first uh, tw- uh, 19th, 20th century, where they turned this luxury liner that held 3,000 people into a 16,000 troop carrier for World War II. Painted it gray. They called it the Gray Ghost. If you're not familiar with it, Google that and, and check it out. It's amazing. That's, that's our church, right? Are we, are we a, a luxury liner or are we a troop carrier? We better be a troop carrier because we're, we're in a battle. We're in a fight. Underlying everything that Paul is about to describe of what it looks like to covenant together as a family is this understanding out of a deep love for Jesus, wrapping our lives around humble Jesus being humble servants that we are at war. Now, this is not an evil, it is an evil versus good, but it's not like we're waiting to see who's going to win, right? The battle has been won. Jesus is the victor. He has won. He hung on the cross, and before he died, he said, it's finished, it's done, it's, it's complete, it's accomplished. I've already won. But the battle rages on because we're sinful people. We have flesh, we have bone, we have hearts that are still sick with sin and evil. And as long as we're, we're on this earth before it's been redeemed and we're enwrapped in these bodies of flesh, we're going to be at war. The battle's going to rage on in the hearts and the minds and the flesh of sin, sinful people. And it's with this war ten, wartime mentality that we lock arms together as a covenanted people of God, and we love one another really, really, really well together with Jesus. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, what does it look like? What does this covenantal love look like? You're like, Craig, you've been saying this for an hour almost. What's the posture of this kind of love? Listen, just listen, just listen to this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Beloved, go home and read that. Go home and write it down. Go home and tape it somewhere where you can see it every day. Because that's what it should look like. I would sum that, those two verses, Romans 12, 10 and 11, by saying we live out of a posture of humility, of life engagement with one another that is Holy Spirit inflamed, familial based, pace setting in nature, Christ exalting, and values the other person as an image bearer of God. This is the default setting of a covenant family. That's the default setting, verse 10 and 11. The outworking of that is prayer in presence, verse 12 and 15. Persistent prayer that consists of asking God to move us, one another, from areas of unbelief to belief. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of discipleship and disciple-making. Two different terms. It's moving one another from areas of unbelief to belief. We forget the gospel. What do we need to do? We need to, we need to gospel one another and encourage one another and exhort one another and sometimes, yeah, rebuke. And it's about moving people from unbelief to belief. Why? Because the gospel affects every area of our life. There is not an area it doesn't touch. And some of you guys are resisting the gospel in some areas of your life. You just are. And you need to work through that. A posture of genuine love for one another is never, ever less than persistent prayer. It's never less than that. Asking the Holy Spirit to move mightily in the lives of other people. And at 9 o'clock next, next Sunday morning, it's going to begin down the hall. And I encourage you guys to engage it. Pray for each other. Sometimes what it looks like to one another, each other, as a covenanted family is presence. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We have to be better partiers. Christians should be the best partiers. They really should. 
They should be the best at celebrating things in life and inviting each other into that. In the context of your gospel community, people that you were to be celebrating life with and doing life with, do you invite them into celebration? Or is it, I celebrate here with my gospel community and then I go over here and I celebrate with my family and my relatives when my grandfather turns 100. And never the two will mix. I'm not saying you invite everybody to everything, but be strategic. Invite some people that might need to experience what family looks like because they've been hurt and wounded in life by family. And maybe invite them into some other celebrations with your blood family. So we celebrate together. We celebrate together. If we see people as family, we will, we will do that. We'll cross, we will, we will co-mingle, which will become gloriously uncomfortable. Gloriously uncomfortable. And I hate it. Right? Chief among them. I hate being uncomfortable when it comes to uh, crossing over that way. But, but we need to do it. We need to do it. We weep together. Sometimes we just need to show empathy. Not pity, not compassion, not even sympathy, but empathy. Sharing in the other person's emotions, right? Feelings, and, and have the willingness to just sit there with them. Sometimes literally. Just sit there with them. Not because they've asked us to, but just to be there, just to have the gift of presence, sitting there, having empathy with them in the very moment, usually without words. If any of you have lost a relative, particularly a parent, and you have had people show up at the funeral home that you were, not aghast, but you were amazed that they would take the time and the care to show up, you know what I'm talking about. My sister knows. It happened twice to us when both of my parents passed away. Some of the people that showed up, we were, we were just so blessed by the presence. They didn't have to say anything. They were exhibiting empathy to us in that moment. So prayer and presence, and we're wrapping this up, I promise. We need to meet the needs even when it's hard. Verse 13 and 16 Treating one another as a covenanted family means we meet needs of others, which assumes we know what those needs are, right? We got to know if we serve. To love and serve somebody means we need to know what those needs are in each other's lives, right? So we have to express those needs. I say this, many of you have heard this. I told somebody this week that sometimes uh, the best way to serve other people is to let them serve you, right? Sometimes that's the best way you can serve others is to let them serve you. Now, it gets really hard because there are personality conflicts and feelings of entitlement, and, and sometimes in our brokenness, we're just hard people to love. There have been some really difficult people to love at this church. And quite frankly, sometime there comes a time where you have to draw some pretty strict boundaries because it can be harmful. But that's not our default. We... we, we Sometimes those boundary lines get drawn too quick. We ought not do that, right? That's not what covenanting is. The point, that's the point of covenanting, right? It's saying, I'm not leaving you because God doesn't leave you. God doesn't leave you. He doesn't save you and then leave you alone. He doesn't do that. So I'm not going to do that. Was it easy for Jesus to love us when we spit in his face? Being covenanted together means we extend grace in the most difficult of circumstances, right? Seeing each other as family this way with grace as our default. Listen, seeing each other as family, covenant family with grace as our default will create the trust and the safety for those times when we do need to hold people accountable and when we do need to rebuke them gently, right? But that shouldn't be our starting place. Right? Getting, getting up in somebody's kitchen, as it were, should not be the starting place. It should be the starting place of grace is our default that gives us and earns us the right to speak truth into their lives. I'm going to end this way. There's a quote. There's a quote that I read this week from a really cool sounding guy. His name is Caesar Kolonowski. Isn't that a great name? Caesar is a... Um, um, uh, a writer and a discipler and has written some amazing stuff over the years. And, and I've been reading a lot of his stuff. And he says this. Here's how we're going to end. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God moves along the lines of relationship and the gospel moves at the speed of trust. 
Okay? The kingdom of God moves along the lines of relationships. In other words, the kingdom of God, that, we, that God brings us into his, is his family, and, and our, our heart is to be disciple makers, to bring others into the kingdom of God, moves along the line of relationships. It's, it's disciples making. It's discipleship, which is an intent of, of actually following Jesus, right, in a very active way with one another. And then disciple making is engaging other people that don't know Jesus and making disciples, Right? That moves along the line, you, quite naturally, of relationships, or it should be natural if you're a believer. And then the gospel moves along the speed of trust. As you build the relationship and you gain trust in one another, then speaking the gospel into one another's lives then becomes a very natural thing to do because you've gained their trust. I think what happens, and I think what probably is happening in some of our relationships with one another, in our, and particularly in the context of our gospel communities, but, but in the broader church itself, is that people are pressing in on some sin patterns in our lives, and we're not willing to listen because trust has not, been, has not happened. Trust has got to, to happen before you can have a, a right to speak into somebody else's life. So don't assume that that's happening. And so as we think about next steps, think about that regarding your relationships with people. And it might have to start with some people really, really close to you. But have you gained their trust? Is the gospel moving, the the kingdom of God moving along the lines of relationship? And is the gospel then moving at the speed of trust? We have the great privilege to celebrate together as a family by taking the Lord's Supper now. So we're going to have a time of, of uh, celebrating um, the Lord's Supper, uh, which is a, a meal that we take together. Uh, so um, respond to this however you need to respond to this. If you need to pray and ask God some serious questions on, on how to engage all of this, um, do that. If you want to celebrate by uh, coming and celebrating the Lord's Supper as a, as a kingdom person, do that. If you need prayer, let me know. I'll be over here. Grab one of the other elders, Sam, Jesse, Matt. Mike isn't here today. He's doing awesome things, fighting fires, helping people, serving people. But let's do that. Let's respond that way this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together, celebrating with one another, doing so out of a deep reverence of wrapping our lives around our Savior as humble servants to love and serve God and one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, God. When we are wretched people, people who stray far from you, God, our hearts are so so busy doing other things, Lord. We become conformed to the world so easily. Forgive us, God. We thank you. We're astounded by your faithfulness to a broken, sinful people who run fast and hard away from you. But you are benevolent and kind and gentle and you you bring us back in like a, a lost sheep. Thank you, Lord. As we celebrate now, Lord, show us. Show us what we need to repent of. Show us how we need to celebrate But ultimately, God, show us the heart of Jesus because that's what we need and that's what we ask for. We thank you. We pray all this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.